one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 518 for the week of Monday, June 10th, 2013. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein and joining me tonight is Mark Graterman. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. And since I missed the uh, the topic of the last show as far as being an actual participant, I listened to you and Gene talking about it. So I did a little homework. Hopefully I'll, uh, I'll be a good one uh, for this to pitch in. I hope so, because we missed you last week, but um, we're glad to have you with us this time, and actually this time Gene McCulka is unable to join us due to some emergency family matters, and all of us here at Talking Space have him in our thoughts and are hoping for all the best. So, instead of Gene McCulka tonight, joining us is somebody else who was lucky enough to attend Space Fest 5 as well, which is once again tonight's topic. On top of that, she is pretty popular on Twitter, if I do say so myself, and she also works at the <laughs> Challenger Centers for Space Science Education, which if you're a long-time listener, you know that I've been a part of as well. So please welcome to the show, Libby Norcross. Uh, thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. We are glad to have you with us. So um, before we get into the Space Fest fun, wanted to mention a couple of quick news things, just like we did last time, and hopefully this time they'll be a little more relevant as we don't have to wait two weeks for my computer to be repaired to post it. Um, so, let's begin with a little bit of space news. To start it off, let's go with everyone's favorite Canadian at this moment, Chris Hadfield. As you might remember, he recently returned from his stay aboard the International Space Station after gaining international fame as a Twitter and YouTube star and known for his interactions with the public while on orbit. Well, those interactions are still continuing as he works on his recovery. However, he did announce today that he will be retiring from the Canadian Space Agency. He did a heck of a lot of fun stuff, from singing in space and all the cool videos. Yeah, I sort of wonder how he comes up with all the ideas of all of the things that he did. Um, you know, the the interviews, the, the especially the number of interviews that he did. Exactly. You name the organization, there's something there on top of his videos for the Canadian Space Agency. He did some things with a YouTube channel called Tested, and he's everywhere and anywhere. It was quite a force. A little bit of trivia. I heard him speak uh, at a event at KSC in, had to have been 20, uh, wow, lose track of the years, and it wasn't that long ago. But it was the uh, last SRBs that were leaving the assembly and refurbishment facility headed over to the VAB to be used on 135. And he and another astronaut spoke to the group that was pretty much closing out production in that facility. And uh, he talked about a 
you know, his experience on, on a launch on the shuttle and what it was like. And, uh, very interesting to say the least. Yeah. He was an amazing guy. He now passed 1 million followers on Twitter and, um, Obviously, wishing all the best of luck to him and whatever he chooses to do next, because now he's a superstar. Yeah, something he said today um, when he announced his retirement that I thought was cool was he said, um, I'm going to be retired by the end of the hearing, so I'm looking forward to seeing if and, you know, what else comes from him in the future. Exactly. So all the best of luck to Commander Chris Hadfield and whatever he does next. Now, the second bit of news is... uh. Another launch coming up. A manned launch. But you're probably going, wait a minute, the Soyuz just launched a couple of weeks ago. How could there be another manned launch? Well, many people forget about China, and they have a manned spaceflight program. So Shenzhou 10 is scheduled to lift off at 5.38 a.m. Eastern Time, which is 9.38 GMT, with the three-person crew from the Zhuquan Satellite Launch Center out in the Gobi Desert. Now, bear with me as I attempt to pronounce this, because if you've listened to the show, you know that I am not good at all at pronouncing things. So, the Shenzhou 10 mission will be 15 days, and will go to the Tiangong-1, which, as you might recall, is their mini-orbiting laboratory that they have up in orbit. They'll be doing a couple of dockings, one automatic and the other manual. Now, the crew is a three-person crew. If you'll remember the last mission had the first female astronaut, the first female Taikonaut, as the Chinese astronauts are called. The three-member crew for this one is veteran Ni Haisheng, who will be the commander. There's also Zhang Xiaohuang, and a female who will be flying up, Liu Yang. So that'll be the crew launching. Now, it's kind of scary still thinking that China's launching manned missions. Is it scary, or is it just... Interesting and awe-inspiring that people are flying into space still. Gee, I'd really like to know, you know, some of the comparisons as far as procedures, uh, perhaps the uh, equipment itself. Um, you know, there's so much emphasis with with events that we've seen with shuttle launches that with safety, and I'd sure like to see a comparison. Yeah, well, let's just say that they made some major modifications for this mission to the Long March rocket that they'll be launching on. And if you don't know, the uh, the spacecraft, the Shenzhou, is very similar to the Soyuz. It's based off of the same technology. What do you think, Libby? Do you think this is scary, or is this good for humanity? Because it is China. I think it's good that there are people going into space. Uh, what is... I don't know if scary is the right word, but what it makes me think about, though, is why aren't we gaining up there and why are, you know, what's China's program is moving along so quickly and, you know, we're kind of stagnant here. And so I'm excited that China's getting up there. I'm curious to see what will come out of their program. I wish that we were working together with them. But, you know, when I talk to people and as I serve social media, I see a lot of different perspectives on the matter. I know some people that think it's very scary and China's going to land a man on the moon and replace our flag and other people who think, well, this is fantastic that we have more people going into space. So there's a lot of perspectives, but it just kind of makes me reflect on our own space program and why we're not moving that fast. That's a good point, actually, because, I mean, this is actually their last scheduled manned flight until they launch their official space station in 2020, if the international governments ever let that happen. Because, in fact, NASA has pretty much, 
I guess, an embargo where they cannot do any space-related activities with China, essentially by law at this point. So, Yeah, it's very interesting to kind of watch how this is going to play out. Exactly, and we'll keep an eye, and regardless of what country it is, since there are humans on board, we are, of course, hoping for a successful launch and a successful mission to the entire crew. And um, we'll hopefully have a launch Tuesday morning, and hopefully by the time you're listening to this, they'll be in space. And just a reminder, uh, I'm used to thinking about when I can see the ISS on an overhead pass at dawn and dusk in those times. And the Chinese station, Tiangong-1, is tracked on heavens above. And from my location here in North Florida, unfortunately, there's no passes that I'll be able to observe during the time that the crew is on board from the looks of it. But uh, shortly after that, in the latter part of June, there are uh, two, four, six uh, visible passes for North Florida. So check your tracking on that if you want to catch a look at it. Yep, keep looking up. You'll never know whose space station you're going to see, especially since from Earth you can't really differentiate whose space station is who. Because <laughs> it might be that this is not the space station you're looking for. Anyway. All right, so now at this point we've made you wait an entire week to hear about the rest of Space Fest 5. So let's get right into it. Last time we had discussed two panels. We discussed Brian Cox and Carolyn Porco's talk, and we also discussed the Apollo panel and hinted at what would be coming up this week. So we'll start things off this week with the next panel that followed the Apollo panel, and that was on Mars. It's had some pretty prominent authors who'd written about Mars and some other scientists who had had their foot in the field. So let's get right into some of the clips and hear them talking about Mars, because it's an interesting place. And if you know, we've talked a lot about sending things there. We've sent a bunch of rovers, talked about humans on Mars. There's a lot there. Let's get things started here. Let's talk about everyone's favorite thing, and that's the budget. So it's kind of scary where we're at at the moment in terms of exploration. And uh, Emily Lakdawalla had a great mention about this and our lack of presence in the solar system as a whole. So uh, let's hear that one. Really, the, I mean, I, I think that the Mars program has shown us what a deep, multi-dimensional, multi-mission program can do to help us understand a single world. And then the balanced program that we had in the 90s, where we also had small, medium, and large-sized missions exploring the rest of the solar system, was also immensely productive. The problem now is that NASA's budget has been contracted to the point where we just can't do it all anymore. And so our choice is either to, um, to end everything or to and not end Mars and end practically everything else, which is the direction we're going. In 2017, we're going to have no more outer planets missions. Um, we're going to have no more inner planets missions. The outer planet mission, the only one going is from the European Space Agency. Inner planets, it'll be um, the Japanese Space Agency in Europe, um, the Moon, uh, China, and India. Um, and we're going to be on Mars and asteroids, and that's pretty much it. And that's because that's all we can afford. It's not because we're taking money that was there and putting it all into Mars. It's because our, the, the plot has contracted. And so that's what we're, the Planetary Society is advocating very strongly for a modest increase in NASA's budget. So we can actually do Europa, and we can think about going back to Venus. Wouldn't that be awesome? We haven't been there in a long time, and Venus tells us so much about Earth's climate. So that we need to broaden just a wouldn't take a lot more money. That's the frustrating thing. Another $200 million in the budget would let us get back to that 90s-type portfolio of large, medium, and small missions that would enable us to support us. I know that sounds like a lot of money, but you know, in the scheme of things, that's nothing, especially when you look at you know, how much money some of the other 
things are getting some of the other programs such as defense and military. I mean, I understand our need to be safe and our need for military, but what about our need to explore? Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to imagine something different. I don't know. It's almost like I feel like we're we're trapped in a position of either not having the big destinations or of just not having anything at all. So let me ask you this then in relation to that, and this, this kind of peeks ahead at the asteroid panel, but do you think commercial operations such as space mining will help pave the way for NASA to be able to eventually get missions to places like Europa again? Or do you think that it's going to be a long time NASA is mostly just doing Mars and doing asteroids, like Emily said on that panel? Personally, I think NASA's kind of like, all right, here's the budget that we have, which is essentially zero, so we got to focus on something, but what? And then they're looking at, all right, well, we've explored the moon, uh, we've sent some stuff to the inner solar system, but there's no chance of landing humans on it, and right now, they think the public, I guess, wants to see manned spaceflight, because that's what most people think of when they think of NASA, is the moon missions and the space shuttle, not all the other amazing extrasolar stuff, such as Cassini and Voyager and Messenger. So I think at this point they're looking at, all right, what destinations can we go to where we can actually send people, not just robots? Along those lines, I actually asked the panel as one of the questions about their thoughts on do we send humans to places like Mars? Do we send robots or both? Well, I think though that, that robotics have gotten so much more sophisticated now that I think a hybrid approach is probably what would be the most successful. We send humans into Mars orbit who can teleoperate through, you know, a... Uh, their telepresence, robots that are operating on the surface of Mars in real time. People, these, we're getting more and more comfortable using machines as extensions of our own senses. I see the robots exploring the solar system as avatars of us, um, ex using their senses to explore. And they're getting better and better, and we're getting better at building systems that allow us to immerse in the worlds that, in, in the artificial worlds that we create. We can explore real worlds with our brains, our ability to handle unexpected things. The astronauts who were up here on the previous panel, they'll tell you that was the most important thing about having humans going to the moon, is the fact that when things happen that somebody didn't predict, they were there with their brains and their hands to fix the problems. And so we can combine the advantages of humans with our brains and our hands and our ingenuity, and the robots who can survive in the environments that we can't possibly deal with. You put humans on the surface of Mars, they're going to be spending the, all of their waking hours being janitors, cleaning all the dust that gets in all the filters and all the systems. You keep them in a safer environment, let the robots handle the difficult environments, and we could explore so much. And I think that would be, I, I feel like that's the way that human exploration into outer space is going to go. It's no longer going to be either or as we get farther into the future. It's going to be together. The robots will be us. So they just have to get close enough to Mars that the light travel time for the radio control is, is very short. Right. Okay, one, one thing to watch for in the next... Uh, month or so. This is not Tomorrowland talking. It's it's like they're going to run an experiment at Ames Research where they're going to run a robot from the space station and try to do a simulated deployment of a science uh, uh, interferometer. And it's the beginning of haptic sensors coming in. The Europeans have got a big plan coming. Uh, but it's all to do a test of this interaction between humans on the space station and a robot at Ames, and especially prepared uh, uh, terrain. But it's also simulating an L2 point type of mission where you go to the moon, uh, or you stay in L2 and run a robot on the moon. It's also viable for Mars. 
So we're seeing something in the next uh, few months that's going to be, I, I've been watching that one grow, and it's funded and nobody, no sequester problems. So it's going to happen, but that we'll see what the uh, linkage is between human interaction and a robot. And uh, I think it's something to watch. That's the one. I agree with you. I thought that was an interesting response. I was not expecting it to be so, you know, prone on having both a hybrid, you know, sending someone using the asteroid in a way or sending it to Phobos or Deimos, one of the moons, and then controlling it from there. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that she brought this up because um, last fall I was preparing actually for a science fair our challenger is going to be at. And in my research about robots, I found a couple of articles that were saying humans um, orbiting and exploring the surface with robots was the way to go. And the points that Emily made were exactly what I was seeing in that article. And it's not something I had thought about before because you're you're right, kind of like you named that sound clip, humans versus robots. That's what a lot of people's mentalities are. But I think there is definitely a future and a lot of possibility in going with a hybrid approach. Yeah, I have to you know be honest too and think where have I have I picked up on a lot of excitement lately? It's been, you know, the news out of JPL with the Mars rovers. It's been, you know, thinking the rest of the world, the depths of the seas, the things that are done with remotely operated vehicles and such. Um, you know, there's a lot of places that we can't go and a lot of things that aren't feasible. And I bet they'll discover some new ways of making robotics even more adaptable and flexible and maybe even something that can be changed and modified and, and retasked on the fly. Uh, wouldn't it be neat to have a Swiss Army knife type robot that uh, perhaps even if you didn't have an instrument or a tool or something, that it could be uh, sent to it, you know, have a remote, remote base that it could uh, operate back and forth from, something that could be repositioned on a planet. To, to other locations by flight, perhaps. That yeah, may be going a little far out, but a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and if I could just make another comment, um, can't get the educator out of me. The, one of the things that hooks kids, even at a young age right now, is robotics. And so already we are training kids from a young age to be able to use robots. And so if robotics is the way we go in the future, we're training our army of you know robotic engineers from the get-go and so it's no longer just this elite group of, you know, military pilots or someone, you know, you could only start getting your training in college or whatever. It's these kids that are coming up from a very young age and being coming familiar with robotic interfaces and operating and manipulating machinery. So it's going to be interesting to see this next generation as we go forward, what kind of impacts they have if we go that robotic route. Right. As a Lego robotics instructor, you know, these are the kids that when we sit them down to go into an actual mission, we say, you know, when we talk about the Mars mission, which we say is set, you know, 70 years into the future or whatever, and we talk about how, you know, in 30, 40 years, when they'll be the perfect age to be astronauts, they may be the first people on Mars. But at this rate, it seems like with the robotics training that they're getting, they may be the first astronauts to operate a rover remotely on Mars from another place in the solar system. I think that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> so, of course, as we mentioned, the big problem with all of this, though, of course, is NASA's budget. And it's kind of hard to say that you want more money for NASA's budget if you don't support NASA, right? 
Uh, let's play a clip about that. Well, the, the space community itself is always heavily criticizing NASA, which is really a mistake politically and ethically, I think. The, the NASA is our space agency, and yet the, when space advocates come to Congress, they're always saying, oh, well, NASA, they're so messed up, you should... So what is Congress supposed to think? Even us, in our, there is not a good support group for NASA, and really there ought to be. Just a little important, huh? You know, if you want support for your space agency, you should support it. Absolutely. I had not heard that. Uh, clip from that panel before. That's a, an interesting uh, perspective that he takes there. Exactly, and he wasn't the only one who mentioned it. I mean, Emily mentioned it as well, and I think every single person on that panel at one point mentioned that how can you support NASA and the budget for NASA if you don't support the agency as a whole? Because, I mean, I know that everyone's a little frustrated what they're doing, and some people may not be fond of the SLS and Charlie Bolden and the politics behind it and what they're planning on doing, but if you want to see any money go towards it so that these people can maybe improve the agency, you have to support them. You know what I mean? Whether you like the person in charge or not, whether you like the space program idea or not, you have to support their initiatives so that way they can get the money and actually do more. It sounds hmm. counterintuitive. I think as much as we'd like to change things, um, there is an order there, there's a chain of command, and, uh, you know, I joke about it, but I work for the federal government, and I say, well, you know, President Obama signs my paycheck, so that whatever he says, you know, he's the boss, ultimately. True, but then comes the question for, all right, maybe if not the government, what about these private space agencies? Because this is something that Gene, Gene McCulka, he was asking about this a lot, and I wish he was here to hear this clip, because this was his question that he was asking. What are their thoughts on these things such as Inspiration Mars and Mars One, where they're planning on, you know, sending people one way to land on Mars, or they're sending a couple to orbit around Mars and return. And um, their response was rather interesting. Uh, let's go ahead and play that one, please. What I want to argue against is this uh, freakish party trick privatization of Mars. Because at, at conferences like this, there's a lot of bad-mouthing of NASA. But what, the thing is that we are NASA. So the bad-mouthing is always uh, self-directed and a little bit foolish. And when you get into these rich guys going to Mars, it's exactly like bungee jumping, except in the opposite direction. But formally, it's like an exceptionally long bungee jump. So, so what? When you and say we are Mars, I mean... We, we are NASA. I mean, sorry, we are NASA. But we can't... We, the people in this room, for example, um, you know, we can't get Congress to reinstate the money that they cut from planetary exploration uh, or we could try. Oh, yes, we, we did a month ago. We did a month ago, so, so um, this there is just a huge politics. groundswell of support for the t fiscal year 2013 to okay. put money back into the planetary what, science budget. The American people love these, these space projects because we own them and they're interesting and they're not for profit. So the Pathfinder, the popularity of Sojourner and Pathfinder, this amazing popularity, if you have um, Branson or Elon Musk going there, they're not going to be popular in the same way. It's going to be like a gated community versus a commons. And like the California beaches are public, they can't be owned. And Mars shouldn't be owned in the same way, in the, in the sense of somebody being able to, <clears throat> an individual buying the right to go. It should be a public utility, and we should be one doing it. And it should be part of normal science, part of the American public work. Well, we need to convince our Congress of that. We need to convince our fellow citizens of that, for sure. But to give up and say, oh, well, it's something that rich people will do, and how exciting is that? And they'll make a profit in space. They'll mine asteroids for all these elements that we actually have in huge abundance on Earth, really. 
I mean, none of these things will actually make a profit, so it's a kind of a fantasy, like this thing in Holland of go one way to Mars and all these applications to it. As a science fiction writer, what I do is combine science with fantasy, so I know it when I see it. And what I'm seeing in the public discourse right now about Mars is fantasy. Like, oh, let's go there and we'll put um, you know, people there and they won't come back, and isn't that exciting? Well, no, it's just reality TV. It's like the Jersey Shore, the Martian Shore, who cares? But the actual science going on Mars is really interesting. Peter Smith just said that that's the most popular kind of TV. Well, but sure, but the... the but um, if, it's, if it's just reality TV, then it isn't the planet next door. It, I think the Antarctic model is better. Taken for granted, a little boring, except it's actually very beautiful and exciting if you pay attention to it. But you know, Antarctica makes, uh, Mars makes Antarctica look like, you know, Tahiti. Oh, exactly. But, uh, but Mars also looks like, you know, Tucson, Arizona, a uh, hundred times larger in terms of the scales of things. It's uh, spectacularly beautiful. I don't mean visually, I mean in terms of the habitability. I mean, you know, you can live in Antarctica right. you with can great difficulties, but... Yeah, no, you can go outdoors. It's hard. It's a technological achievement. You can't go there naked and survive. Um, it's a high-tech thing to live in Antarctica, and it's even higher tech to live on Mars. I would love the idea of humans on Mars, but I just want to normalize it as part of science and part of the public uh, work, and not some kind of freakish shite show that only rich people can do. I don't like that. I, I think that's part of the whole privatization of public life, whereas I think that really many of these things really ought to be public and common, and especially Mars. But maybe they'll shame NASA into going in a proper way. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, there's nothing like uh, stimulus from uh, competitors. Yeah, and uh, I'm just saying that uh, let's not down, let's not badmouth NASA because that's our agency. And what we really need to do is um, support it, uh, tell it to do a better job, uh, give it more money, argue for a lot of Pentagon money being shifted over to NASA. I mean, there's many things we have to do. But badmouthing NASA and saying, oh, it's, it's all right because private companies are going to do it, is uh, counterproductive, I think. And you're saying not very realistic. Well, I think it is a fantasy. There's, I mean, it's like this thing that how many thousands of people have signed up to go to Mars in one way. Well, that project can't get there, can't survive on the surface. It is a science fiction project. It's a fantasy where they're dodging all the stuff that NASA doesn't get to dodge. Of like, how do you actually do it? How do you live? They're dodging the engineering, yeah. which is exactly what Leonard is talking about, the engineers. I know that was a longer clip, but I think there was a lot to be said in there, and I didn't think I could cut any of it out. So I think we could take this a little bit at a time. So um, I thought it was interesting that right away, the first thing you did was call it a party trick and uh, well, make it more of a publicity stunt. So, you know, like uh, the Jersey Shore or the Martian Shore. <laughs> Yeah, that was an interesting point and an interesting distinction to make. Right, I mean, it's reality TV is the way he's looking at it, because, I mean, do you think that that's it? Do you think that they're really doing this as more of a reality TV thing, or do you think it's they're actually interested in kind of going to Mars, rather than just interested in getting the publicity for saying, hey, we sent people one way to Mars? Um, I, The point they brought up later about dodging the engineering, that was something when I first heard about missions, I thought, for real? They're going to just send people one way? Or is this just to be outlandish on purpose? Like, I, I kind of have a hard time imagining that in the end, they would really just let people go and stay and die on Mars. Like, I feel like in the end, that would kind of kill the publicity. Like, hey, wait a minute, you let those people die, you know? So I don't know if this is for real or if this is a publicity stunt, but I found it hard to believe when I first heard it. 
kind of wonder where the money connection is in this too. You know, who's making money off of some of those uh, ideas? Right. Yeah. Like you were saying about the fact that, you know, the, the Martian land will be owned if it's done by private companies and, you know, rather than it being it being like a public beach where it's for everyone to use and no one person, you know, owns it. It's kind of like a couple episodes ago we talked about, briefly about the person who was talking about owning bits of the moon. And it's kind of the same way, I think. There's that little treaty that says you can't really own pieces of other planets and I think that could even cause some problems. So it's, I think their, their mind is not in the same mindset as all the scientists. Definitely. Well, I mean, that is a given. Most entrepreneurs aren't thinking scientifically. Most of them are thinking monetarily. And there's a place for both of those things. Is Mars one of them? Uh, depends on how it gets there, I guess. I personally don't think a one-way trip to Mars is the way to get to Mars for monetary reasons, but that's maybe why I'm not uh, an entrepreneur. Because one of the things that they also talked about was the, the medical problems. Because if you go and land on Mars, there's probably a chance that if you return to Earth, you'd be unable to adjust to the gravity. So it might be just as detrimental coming back as it is staying and dying on Mars. Yeah, if we're going to go to Mars and come back, it's going to be a lot of little steps to get there. You heard in the bite, he was talking about science fiction, about how, you know, they try and mix and match actual possible science and fiction. And how he even thought it was crazy. I mean, if a science fiction writer thinks that an actual plan is crazy, I think you may have to double check what you're doing. Yeah, it's interesting. This afternoon, actually, when Commander Hadfield was making his address to the CSA before he announced his retirement, one of the things he spoke about was how science fiction had inspired him as a child. And he talked about how the line between science fact and science fiction is blurring as we become more capable. There is a distinct difference between the two. And as our technology becomes more capable, um, the line is kind of blurring. And I was thinking about that. And I was thinking about things like, you know, space adventures, tourists trip around the moon and the Dennis Tito's trip to Mars and wondering about that blurring of the line. If some people are blurring it prematurely, you know, um, Dennis Tito's trip to send people around Mars. I want to know how much research um, and consideration went into that before it was announced because just the way I found out about it was just kind of like all of a sudden, oh, we're going to send two people to Mars. And that sounds like a publicity stunt. But if there was a lot of, you know, work underlying that that led up to it, maybe I would be inclined to think that it was perhaps not a publicity stunt, but I don't know. That's really well said about the blurring. And I think they may be blurring it a little too early because, I mean, it's kind of hard to do something if you don't have the technology. Although, then again, as you heard last week in the Apollo panels episode, we discussed that they pretty much didn't have the technology at the time, and they were creating it as they were going. So, you know, the main difference, again, as they talked about, was the fact that then they had a lot of budget. You know, they figured out how much it would be, they doubled it, and they were granted the budget. So they had, you know, a couple million dollars leeway. In this case, um, I don't think you have that. So I think at this point, I understand that new technology has to be created as you go, and that's the blurring of the line of science fiction. But still, I, I think you kind of need a budget and kind of do that. So I think there, the private companies may actually have an advantage, but I still think it may be too early. And just wait until Virgin Galactic and Dream Chaser and others get into business. I think you'll see, I think you'll see some things change. I think you'll hear a lot more voices that are different, that are not 
uh, necessarily part of the traditional space flight uh, slash astronaut slash professional community that are going to raise awareness to a great degree as to what's up there and what it's like. Well, I mean, last week they Virgin announced that Justin Bieber had signed on to take a trip on board one of their rockets, and um, <laughs> it was entertaining. There was a it was an NBC poll on uh, the Today Show, and, and on the bottom of the site it asked, um, "What do you think about this? A that it's good awareness." For Justin Bieber, as well as commercial spaceflight, B, it's a terrible idea, or C, how much would it take to keep him up there? <laughs> At the time, C was winning by a large margin, but still, you know, it's a point like that of, is that good for commercial space? I think for orbital space, yeah, but for these Mars adventures, I don't think so yet. It's very true. The more voices that get added, it's there's going to be a lot more to sift through when making decisions about space travel. Exactly. And uh, who knows, maybe the budget will actually start to lean more towards um, more towards exploration. So that way it'll actually convince NASA, like they were saying, saying, hey, these we're crazy. You know, the people that are coming up with the ideas are slightly on the loonier side, which isn't always a bad thing, but maybe it'll get them to say, hey, these companies are doing something where we could have great science, not monetary, not monetarily, so let's do it. And um, if it were up to Peter Smith, who worked on a bunch of the Mars rovers and landers, he would have his own way, and I think we need him to run for our next president, and I think you'll agree after listening to this final clip from this talk. We are actually at war with uh, the asteroid belt. The asteroid belt has attacked the planet Earth, and I think it's time that we defend ourselves. So I'm going to run for president in 2017. That's right. He'll get the Chelyabinsk vote. Anyway, okay. the Earth asteroids are fascinating, and they're right after us, and I think we need to know more, and we need right. to interact with them, and we need to make that a focus of our program. I thought that was a funny little way to end this segment because when he said that, I mean, we all agree. If we could spend that defense money on defending ourselves from near-Earth asteroids, well then, all the better. Absolutely. And I think that happens to be a conveniently perfect lead-in, I wonder who picked that, into the <laughs> asteroid panel. Now, the asteroid panel isn't exactly what you would think. It was more of a commercial space panel. And it included a couple of the mining companies. You've got Rick Tumlinson and Chris Lewicki of Deep Space Industries and Planetary Resources, respectively, on the panel. As well, a good friend of ours, Jeff Notkin, was on the panel. He is also with Deep Space Industries. And Dan Durda is there as well. So um, this was a really interesting panel. And uh, I think, besides the Apollo panel, probably my favorite because they brought up a lot of controversial points because we've been talking a lot on this program about going to the moon, going to Mars, going to an asteroid, and some of the crazy plans such as to pull an asteroid into Earth orbit. And we've talked a lot about this. We've heard your opinions on it, the listeners. Now it's interesting to hear the opinions of the people who are actually crazy enough to go out and do it. So let's get right into some of these clips. And I think one of the biggest things that we worry about at the moment right now is 
the fact that, all right, if these commercial people are going, what's going to happen to science? And Mm -hmm. I think Rick Tumlinson said something very interesting, which I don't know if I like it or not, but we'll let you guys be the judge as well. I think that the things we can do very, very cheaply, we can move fast, we can innovate, um, we can do things uh, in new ways that are are paid paid for the return. For example, as opposed to being paid to look busy, which is basically your aerospace model. Um, I won't get into the FARs or contracting methods, but um, we were, we're going to be moving towards the direction of getting paid for the return of what we did. So we have to go out and get data, and then we can bring it back for the scientists to So it's a, a commercial model working in partnership with government scientific needs. I applaud what you're doing because the same objects that we want to go out and, and, and mine and learn about from an exploration point of view and learn how to basically make money from in terms of resources and resources that we're going to need in space when we're operating out there, these are the very same objects that do these kinds of things, right? And so the, the very act of learning how to work on these objects and, 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 and use them for the resources is no need to be teaching us that much more about how to operate on their surfaces should we ever one day need to make sure that one doesn't actually you know, hit us. And so it's a very important work what you're doing. There's a third part, too, in that uh, uh, look at the U.S. Geological Survey and everything that they have done in uh, our knowledge about the resources within the United States and the geology goes on. Shell Oil and British Petroleum and all these other companies do way more geology than the USGS ever does and, you know, in the pursuit of understanding really their business proposition. So there, there will be probably a vast increase in the amount of science that's done as a result of uh, the commercial operations. Yes, absolutely. That was also Chris Lewicki and Dan Durden as well. I thought that was, that says a lot about each of the companies. I guess I remember hearing that the first time and him saying, well, these big commercial companies like Shell are doing much more science than USGS. But I guess what I thought about was then, you know, how is the science being used? Um, USGS using it for education and spreading knowledge and just the, the very different mindset of the use of that science once it's done. I mean, it's all good and well if you can learn and do tests, but if you just hold on to that knowledge for your own business enterprise, it's not the same thing as, you know, spreading that out. And because I'm an educator, I'm all about sharing the information that we learn and the knowledge that we learn. And that's not to say that, you know, planetary resources or whoever wouldn't spread that knowledge, but I was really interested in the mindset behind what happens to that science once it's done. Right. So, I mean, basically, it's like, here we are, we're going out returning things. And if you remember on the last panel we heard they were talking about, it's like, yeah, these are bells that we have in abundance here on earth so how much is science how much is commercial how much is oh well there's a little bit of science that comes with this so here whoever wants it you know throw it to the vicious dogs and whoever grabs it first grabs it or whoever has the most money mm-hmm. grabs it because so i think the money is a big factor and uh, let's go back to science and a little bit about the money for another clip keep in mind it's not the engineers who should be the end user of science it's the scientists and if we can return more data and information to the scientists and, and those who are engaged in, in the, the activity of science, then we will learn more and we will have more people who can participate in science for lower cost. 
Okay, so our job is not to, to take that on. We want to see NASA and universities and others have lots of samples, lots of yeah. information. I mean, the free sharing of information and making it widely accessible to people who are experts in all the different nooks and crannies of this field. Yeah, that's um, our job. Again, is that really their job or is it a side effect? It, it was sounding an awful lot to me like it was a side effect that they were just kind of wanting to um, glorify, I guess. And maybe it is a good thing. Maybe I'm a little suspicious because it's commercial, but it did. It really, when you think about it, it's, oh, we're going to go out there. Hey, and we're going to get some data and we can give it to some scientists when we get back. Um, I'm curious if, you know, there would be scientist-driven data collection, or if it would be kind of a dump of, well, we were out here, we got this stuff, and hey, we got some data, let's give it to some scientists. Right. I agree that it's different if it's they're going out with the intention of just mining, and then all of a sudden they're like, oh, hey, we got a little bit of science, or if they're going out to mine, and while they're there, saying, okay, here's some of the science opportunities that we have. While we're here, we could find out this and this and this about asteroids, and the NASA scientists could benefit. I think differentiating between one or the other is going to make the difference between benefiting the science community as a whole or hurting the science community. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, the, even the Apollo missions when everybody wanted to put a scientist up there, you know, send the geologist with the crew and just kind of the different perspectives on that. And this is not a perfect analog, but even thinking about commercial space flight and the people I've talked to about putting a scientist up there versus just going straight commercial and going for the resources. So it's kind of interesting to see that theme pop up again in our time in its own way. Although one of the moonwalkers that I did talk to, he said, he's like, you know, the whole thing about sending a scientist up there. Like, we were all trained. We were all trained in geology. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he was questioning in the idea of, well, sending up a scientist, was it really worth it? Because we were all relatively trained anyway, and he just went, oh, look, here's rocks, which we were doing anyway. I'm not going to name so, what it was, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I, you know, and I heard that, too, when I was down there at Space Fest. Do you think, then, that they would train the uh, the miners to be like scientists? <laughs> Do you think that you would see any of that, like, in the Apollo days? I don't know how much of this is going to be manned, because from all the video that I saw in the, uh, I know you weren't there for the keynote, um, but they showed an interesting video, and in the video they showed, it seemed to be pretty much remote, all remotely controlled and robotic, so I'm assuming that at this point it's going to be going back to the, uh, the Mars panel of humans versus robots, and at this point I think it's going to be all robotic, so I don't know how much actual science you're going to get from sending they're robotic versus sending human, but I think that may play a factor. Exactly. So going back to the whole money behind it, because we, you know, we talk a lot about the science and everything and how is this just monetary. Um, Jeff Nock and Rick Tomlinson uh, said something very interesting about their company in commercial space based on a person who asked a question essentially about outreach and how we can get the public, you know, how we can spread the word to the public, sort of. And... Um, their explanation was interesting, so let's go ahead and play that clip. I think there's a big difference between space tourism and, and what deep space industries is about. So, and I absolutely agree with what you're saying, but I think, please don't think I'm being rude, you're perhaps missing the point a little bit of what we're talking about. Yes, there are very wealthy people who, who are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, or in some cases millions of dollars, to go to the ISS or, or to go up in Virgin Galactic flights, and God bless them. I mean, if I had the money, I would do it in a second. I think we're looking more at a way in which space can be uh, explored and colonized 
and utilized by, by working with, with uh, technologies that can be developed in space without having to ship every part up there. Imagine if we can build everything that we need in space by getting raw materials from asteroids. That will hopefully, in the long term, make space exploration more available to more people. And so I see, I see a divergence, a considerable divergence between these two things. The very wealthy space tourism, I'm gonna pay $100,000 just to go up into orbit one time, but we're looking at a long-term business proposition in space that would allow us to build, to fabricate, to explore. And there, there's, there's a difference there. Just, what do you think about that? You know, one of the great things about the wealthy spending money on these kinds of things is that the money's leaving the wealthy <laughs> and, and going into the pockets of all the people that build the rockets and fly the rockets and all of the jobs that are created for those kids who want to work in the space field are getting their salaries paid by those wealthy people buying those tickets. Number one. Number two, the way economics works in a system that is working economically, which some of the tourism stuff up until now hasn't been really working in a you know, keep in mind, we, we flew Tito for um, $16 million, and now it's gone up because we have governments in there buying tickets and stuff. But normally, in that kind of situation, the cost would start to come down over time. Big screen TVs. I, excellent, yeah, I, big screen TVs. You know, it used to be the rich only, now everybody's got them. And, you know, all those 36-inch Sonys are sitting out in the front yard waiting to be hauled off because they're too heavy. Um, but. That's one, one important point, that money is transferring and creating an economy. And it's distributing that and it's creating jobs for lots of people to get involved. And if, if you really want to see it, I was just talking to one of the, uh, the astronauts today, you want to see some excitement, go visit SpaceX. Go visit XCOR, go visit these companies and see these kids working that they can't send home. They can't, it's like, okay, you're done, go home now. You know. So they're getting involved. Now, number two, you're exactly right. We have to be able to tailor the, the jobs we're doing. And by the way, that is part of what the competition is gonna be. It's how do we market our two companies in a way that most involves the public because we want sponsors. Unlike some old prospector on a mule back in the day, we get to hang a logo on the side of the mule. You know, and we're gonna get that logo by having a campaign wherein you can go to Company X's site and talk to the robot or get a step, you know, and you get your name or your class gets to put its thing on this or that or the other. So yeah, it's very important that we, that we bring in and get our message better. But I believe that this new kind of partnership with the competition we're having and with the partnership we can have with the government, we'll be able to do that a lot better than it's ever been done before. And we have to pay attention to folks like Oh man, I would have liked to have heard him go up against um, the gentleman on the Mars panel who was talking about the rich people going to space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting view of it, that the money is leaving the rich and going to the companies that build the rockets. But then again, isn't that commercial space? Shouldn't it be that the money that we all as citizens pay in taxes go into our space program and then that for all mankind and for science then goes to the asteroids? Just a personal question. Can we not have both? We definitely can. And I think, as it was mentioning a little bit in the clip, you know, that would be beneficial. Is if we had 
NASA working on it as well as commercial because then A, you've got the science that they can bounce off of each other and B, you then have human exploration or robotic exploration and science coming out of it as well as resources. And in fact, sometimes it may be that NASA may use those resources to refuel spacecraft and things in orbit. So it could be a great partnership. But at the same time, I think you have to find a right balance. Yeah, I think it'll be complicated, but I think some of the best partnerships are the ones that take the most work. They're going to be complicated, like NASA and commercial space. And then, oddly enough, you had the two opposing companies who were up there next to each other, and we were expecting it to be somewhat of an all-out brawl, and yet they were tending to agree with each other on most topics. I mean, Jeff and Rick are from the same company, but, you know, Chris Lewicki, who's with Planetary Resources, not Deep Space Industries, they tend to have a very similar mindset, although they did say that they're not going to reveal anything because their competitors were right near each other, but still, I found it amazing that the two tended to agree so much. Yeah, I thought that was a good sign. Going back a little bit to talking about what you were saying with how maybe we could have a mix of both government and private, there was something interesting that was brought up by Jeff Notkin, and it's about pretty much how, at this point, we're living in the future and all the stuff that's coming up technology-wise. So um, so let's play this clip. Uh, shortly after we did the DSI announcement, there was a very amusing report about it on a kind of geek news show with this very attractive kind of slightly ditzy young lady and she's very energetic and, and she goes, well, look, we've you know, recently heard about, about, about planetary resources and that's really exciting and now we've got this, uh, this announcement about DSI, Deep Space Industries, and a few years ago if someone had said to me, we're going to have two asteroid mining companies, I would have said, what is this, the Jetsons? <laughs> and, and look, it, I mean, it's, we're living in science fiction, here's representatives from from two companies that seriously want to get out into space, private sector, mine asteroids, and, and I think, the, I think the, the money from your supporters that's being used for these, for these purposes, isn't it uplifting? I mean, it's, it's a, I really, it really gives me hope for the future. We have a tendency, I think a lot of us in, in science and the arts, to go, oh, big companies, evil, but not always. And that goes right back to what we were just talking about. Mm-hmm, that blurring of the line again. Science fiction, science fact, living in the future. Right, I mean, th this is kind of like the Jetsons at this point of, you know, having, without the zooming cars and the floating and everything and the robot doing dishes, as much as I wish that would exist. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is extremely futuristic. Two companies that are on the stage, they're competing against each other to mine asteroids, essentially. It really is futuristic. And do you think that these guys, we were talking about it with Mars, but do you think that these guys are blurring the line between reality and science fiction or not. Oh, man, robots out there mining asteroids? I totally feel like that is, you know, moving right into the science fiction era. And I love it because that's what inspires kids and makes people excited about the program and excited to, you know, get their hands in it and give it a try and think about it and make improvements too. So, you know, there's all the corporation versus education, the money versus the science and all these things. But I love what Jeff said. And I even, I remember tweeting about it during the presentation that it's uplifting. I mean, when you stand back and you really think about it, it is quite amazing that we are able to live in a time where this is happening. And so it's totally blurring the line. And I think that if we're smart about it, that can be a very, very good thing. Actually, I'm more hopeful about some things for the future 
with a combination of, of activities that we've heard, you know, discussed. And one of them is robotics. And the other is, uh, I brought it up earlier, but suborbital flight and eventually bit by bit longer and longer, uh, you know, lower earth orbit flights for civilians. And uh, I was thinking just then about Chris Hadfield, how uh, his number of Twitter followers rose dramatically to, I think, in the tens of thousands to a million at this point. And mm-hmm. when you take celebrities, which regardless of, of what you think of certain celebrities, but if, if celebrities uh, go fly and experience zero gravity, and talk about it and sell people on it. And it seems to be more commonplace. And then the excitement of robotics and with the experience that each of you has with, with kids in the Challenger Center. And people are going to expect things to happen. And that's when doors are going to open. The right now are being held shut because of the pressure of cost. Yeah, that's a good point about expectation leading to more action and as we you know support our system and we watch things happen you're right then people are going to start to expect more things to happen i love the way you put that mark this is a completely new and unexplored era that we're entering and i'm excited that we are a part of it and uh i think that we should finish this with one last inspirational line that i thought was interesting from chris lewicki of planetary resources which as you might know, recently announced that they are doing the first publicly funded telescope, essentially, and satellite in orbit, where I mean, if you donate enough money to their Kickstarter campaign, they will actually put a picture of you on an iPad on board and take a selfie from space. <laughs> but um, regardless of how silly that sounds, I think that um, this was really interesting, and I think we'll finish on this. So, you know, Apollo 13 is a, a you know, great example. Failure is not an option. But when failure is not an option, success gets really expensive. And I think that says a lot. I mean, it's not going to be cheap. And failure isn't an option. But, you know, if it's not an option, then you're not going to go cheap on things. You're going to spend the extra money to make sure that everything is safe and everything works. And I think that's an interesting philosophy, not just for companies that are mining asteroids, but in general. Yeah, that was definitely one of my most retweeted tweets from that event, that statement right there. Uh, I thought a lot about it, and I know some people did, too. And, yeah, like, you nailed it. Exactly, and I felt like that was um, the perfect clip to end it on, and that was the final panel of the event uh, before an event later that night, which I'll discuss shortly. But um, any final comments? Because, Libby, you know, you were there for the whole event. What are your thoughts in general on your couple days at Space Fest? Oh, it was a it was a fantastic event, and it was kind of my first time to be in a more international crowd. Uh, I've done some smaller and some purely NASA-related things, and so it was encouraging to me to see um, the mix of people from other countries who are interested in this. And I really got excited about what... What, what's coming on the horizon. I mean, I just love how it's come up again already and again in this podcast, the blurring of the line between science fiction and science fact in a good way. And that's definitely a, a feeling I got from being at Space Fest. I'm excited to see what would come out of these things that we learned about at the event. It was just, it was a fantastic time. Exactly. This is the fifth one. and Just all the ideas combined from all of these. I think that we could change the world and change the, I guess, universe since we're talking about space. 
If you had to pick one favorite moment from the event, personal or panel or comment, what would it be? Oh, I know, it's well, one of the most difficult questions. Well, this, personally, my favorite moment, uh, there had been a lot of personal buildup for me to finally meeting um, Jeff Notkin, actually meeting you too and meeting a couple of other people. And so when I first arrived at Space Fest, I came down that escalator, I was walking down that hallway and I, I saw Jeff and I saw you guys and I met you. That was definitely the highlight for me. In fact, on my, my blog, um, Hello Life Adventures, I'm writing a pretty lengthy post about just the things I learned from observing Jeff. Um, and there I could write equally lengthy posts about many of the people I observed. The speakers were fantastic. The art was beautiful. The astronauts, of course, were to die for. But for me, what I always get most out of the events are the interpersonal things that happen and the people that I meet. They're not necessarily the big, big names, although Jeff kind of was. So for me personally, just meeting Jeff and meeting the people was a an experience I will never forget. Yeah, it was amazing just the variety of people there. I mean, it's impressive, like I was saying last time, it's impressive how you could turn your head around the room, and every time you turn your head, there's either an astronaut or someone big in the professional field related to space. You know, some of the people on these panels. I didn't record the Comet panel, where you have people like David Levy who are speaking, who are big oh, names. And that was such a great, great panel. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that I got to go and be around these people and listen to these people. It was just mind-blowing. It is. It, to be able to just see these people share experiences and the fact that it's not all serious. It's not where it's entirely like these panels where everyone's very set and like, this is what we're doing. I'm here just for this. I'm here just to sign. I'm here just to sell my book. But the fact that everybody was so personable, everyone wanted to hear your story and everyone wanted to share theirs, whether they were an astronaut, a presenter, or just someone who traveled from Australia, from England, from Germany, just to come to the event. It was very international, and everyone was just so loose and having so much fun that the conversations just immediately turned fun right away, no matter who you spoke to. Yeah, it's a great event. Shameless plug, everyone should go to Space Fest 6 next year. Mark, can we expect to see you there maybe next time? I'm sold. Uh, you know, my experience has been pretty limited, and you've heard me talk about the 100-Year Starship Symposium, that I went to the first one and, and didn't go to the second one. And uh, I just saw an email about the, the next one coming up, and I'm thinking, oh, gee, wonder if I can go to that. But now it's got competition because the things that y'all have been talking about have really intrigued me. And I can tell that, um, you know, both the speakers as well as the uh, people that were there to listen were some real heavyweights and people that seriously consider what's going on and what's ahead. So that that brings our Space Fest 5 coverage to its conclusion. I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Mark Ratterman. Good to be here. I really enjoyed your clip, Sawyer and Libby. Appreciate your uh, being there and pitching in, helping us out here tonight. Yes, indeed. Thank you for joining us, Libby Norcross. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun, and I love having people to talk space with. That would be a great name for the podcast, wouldn't it? Talking space. <gasps> wow. <laughs> wow. You should copyright that or something. Get so, get somebody on that. Yeah, trademark would be a good idea. <laughs> if more people want to find out about you, by the way, uh, where can they go? I actually am working on my own website, libbydoodle.com. Um, right now, it's just kind of a small front page, but it links to... 
uh, my blog, my Twitter, my Facebook, my, uh, I use social media a lot. I have a Tumblr where I post posters, my Pinterest board. So uh, LibbyDoodle.com would be actually a good jumping off point to find more out about me. Great. And links to that will be in the show notes. So we thank everybody for joining us here for these last two episodes. We should hopefully be back to space news, full news shows in the coming future. And we're going to end it on a special note this time. And by note, I mean a musical note, in fact. Because Sunday evening, after everything was said and done and the event was almost over at this point, essentially, a band got together to play. And on top of it being some uh, a local band, two uh, more well-known names joined in. And on drums, we had Jeff Notkin. And on vocals was Andy Chaikin, who was actually in the Mars panel earlier. I forgot to mention that he was in that. He was the moderator. So let's abide by their message and take it easy until next time. And until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are.